Welcome to this edition of the Million Dollar Mastermind Podcast. This is where we pick the brains of high achievers from all walks of life and get their hard-earned, real-world insights on winning. I'm your host, Larry Wydell. Why did you do that? Why did you narrow your... That's a question that, every, that I'm asked on a, for obvious reasons on a right. regular... And it's a question to which I have no sort of crystal moment where I think, oh, my God, this is what I need to be doing. It's something that has just been intuitive within me. Um, I recall quite clearly that when I came back um, after a, this sojourn in, in, in America in 75 as a result of my first broken heart, um, having joined the business in 72, uh, my parents very bravely uh, would allow me to take what's called the checkbook yeah. and go out uh, to the local auctions uh, around the country and use my own judgment as to what to buy and what to sell based on uh, you know the experience and what they've tried to instill right. in me, my eye. And I was just always intuitively drawn to quirky early British portraiture. And so I clearly remember the very first sale that I went to uh, when I came back in August 75, so probably you know September, October 75, I went to a local auction and I bought this quirky English portrait of a woman circa 1620. I can still see the picture in my mind now. There's no reason why I bought it other than I just kind of fell in love with the thing, the quirkiness of it, the yeah. rarity. And I think the other thing is, you know, I, I'm actually sort of quite passionate about old England and the countryside. Right. You know, we lived in, we live in one of the most charm or lived in one of the most charming parts of the country, East Anglia, with these beautiful little villages and uh, lane, country lanes. And, and somehow in my psyche, these portraits were synonymous with that the Englishness that I loved. The fact that very few people understood them, and certainly in these early days, I didn't understand them either. I was just buying them out of a just a an intuitive interest. And then over the sort of subsequent um, sort of from what seventy five through till the early eighties, specifically the early eighties, I started to have some quite significant discoveries which were relatively transformational and you know i realized that there was only one other dealer in the market in london at that point who was dealing in this area and i was initially i hold my hand up i kind of wanted to mimic him right he was more successful than we were at this stage and he had a lot of very wealthy clients uh, there was a, also a moment, you know, my father's health by this time had started to decline. Um, he'd had a major heart attack in um, in, in the early 70s, which required major surgery. And I was, as I was becoming more dominant within the business, became clear to me that we were kind of stagnating in East Anglia. For the business to grow, we needed to be in London and we needed to be in the heart of London. So this is a whole new story. How do you how do you move from a small small country provincial gallery, you know, and if you don't have unlimited wealth or right. major finance behind you, which we didn't, we've always kind of relied on bank finance. We need ex extraneous funds, and one of our 
clients who actually then became a, a friend and who had initially um, funded us with a small pot of money to trade in on the basis that we would split profits, which is something that is actually relatively common within the art world. He had this idea that we, so to separate his funds from the business, we created a separate limited company. And then he came in the gallery one day and he said, um, right, I know how we could, you can move into London. He said, um, under Margaret Thatcher, the then prime minister, they'd come up with this um, f- to encourage new businesses, uh, this scheme called the Business Expansion Scheme, whereby outside investors could invest in a startup company. And at that moment, the highest tax rate was 60%, with the base rate being sort of the median being 40%. It, you were allowed to invest up to £40,000 in a new startup company. And as long as you kept in, your funds in for five years, when you um, then crystallized that investment, right. whatever profit you made was tax-free. So, yeah, so that, so that was quite, it was quite a big incentive. This, this, this friend and client who'd been in the property world and in truth was a bit of a character to say the least. He introduced me to a person who, Sorry, I should go on to explain that these new startups, in effect, because they had outside investors, were public companies. They weren't private limited companies. They were public companies. And with everything that entails in terms of um, legislation and and proper due diligence, et cetera, et cetera. So you'd have a board of directors. And so you needed a chairman of the board. And he'd put me in touch with one of his friends who had just retired as the finance director of um, one of the big companies, uh, a big um, a company called Debenhams, who do stores. This man had invented the idea of in-house store credit, which was revolutionary. And anyway, he'd done quite well. He was quite wealthy. And so he was introduced to him. He liked the idea. And he was going to be the, um, the, the chairman of the company. And so we decided the whole thing had to be blue chip. So we went to the the best prestigious um, solicitors, lawyers at the time, which were called W. Greenwells, I remember, our accountancy firm was Arthur Anderson, who right. then very, very serious. We took the view we needed a prime location. The centre of the art market in London is Mayfair or St. James's, you know, anywhere between Sotheby's at the high end of New Bond Street or Christie's down in St. James's. Right. I'll just throw in another little story there. At this time, during this period, my then girlfriend happened to be the daughter of the most famous businessman in Britain at the time, Sir John Harvey Jones, who was chairman of ICI, Imperial Chemicals Industries, which at that time was one of the most powerful global chemical companies in the world. And Sir John was the person that in Britain, I think three years in a running, uh, in a popular vote was voted the man everybody wanted to see running the country ah so instead of margaret thatcher instead of margaret thatcher anyway <laughs> he was a great very personable man but he as it turned out he had, he had no, idea, idea, no idea about the art market or indeed yeah. how it runs so when i remember putting together our business plan as to you know how we should how it would work and he thought we'd, we'd got our eyes on a premises in Albemarle Street, a street just right. across the Piccadilly, a small bijou little um, 
uh, unit, retail unit that was just being redeveloped. He said, well, I'm very nervous about that. You need to be testing the water. I think you should start off dealing somewhere less expensive in North London. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> you don't do that. Was this girl? Let me ask you this. What year is this? This is 84. But up till 84, you're still outside of London. I'm still working with so my you, You're paying your dues. You're making a, a profit. Your name doing, is growing. I'm, I'm, doing, I'm doing the mileage. I'm doing yeah. art fairs on my own. Um, I'm, what was that like when you're out there doing art fair? You know, you talked about if we're going to get this in, people can follow how it relates to uh, things they have to do. You had to dig in and hit the road, getting inventory, and it sounds like you were on the road quite a bit. I was on the road. I'd, I'd spend, on average, certainly every other week, two or three nights in different hotels. You know, you'd, you'd work your way around. So at that time, there was a, a, a trade newspaper called the Antiques Trade, because that was still Ghost Day, right. a weekly magazine that had adverts for auctions you know this you know one has to remember this is pre-internet pre-mobile right, right. So the only way of communication was fax post or the telephone you would buy these uh you're on the train are you having to carry these back uh you know kind of wrap I them up? a state car or a station oh. wagon oh you did okay and so uh that that made things a little easier now you did that for how many years well, I joined in 72, so um, until we launched the public company in 85, I would describe that as my apprenticeship. Yeah, it was a long apprenticeship, but you met a lot of people. and uh, you, huge, you, circle, huge circle of people. And but you developed... Mostly, but mostly all UK-based. I mean, where right. I am, we are a, a veritable international business, which we were not in those days. Yeah, and so... We'll we'll talk about the transition to that, but you you're you're a sweat equity. You're building this thing up from the ground up, and it's your ability to get out there and beat the bushes. But then, how much would you put on uh, a ten fairs? Go to fairs. How many of those a month would you be at? Yeah, I only did um, did the Harrogate Fair, and there was a fair in Birmingham at the NEC, uh, which I did, and there was a fair in London, and then there was a local fair. So we probably did four art shows a year you know primarily um i would pack you know i'd, I'd rent a van right I'd pack the van myself drive the van to the fair unload the van hang the pictures myself do the lighting do the labels do sit through the fair then at the end of the fair i'd take the pictures off the wall myself pack the van myself and then drive the van all the way home myself i do stuff that i don't do anymore you were no stranger to work. Primarily for many people, many successful people, that has to be the bedrock on which future business is built. You have to you have to experience everything at the ground level. You have to, you know, if you're running a factory, yeah. really you should know what, what it's like to be working on the shop floor. You yeah. should have some experience of that. Yeah. Um, you know, the other thing which, you know, my parents, my father in particular, was incredibly brave, but had great foresight and vision. He had to, he realized, and this is a rare thing, I think, in family businesses. He, he you know, if, if Mark is to learn, he has to make his own mistakes. They're going to be our mistakes because he's spending our money. Right. He has to make those mistakes. And only by making mistakes do you really learn yeah. what not to do in the future. 
Right. Now, and because you were so involved, again, with the checkbook going out of there, you knew uh, the decisions he was making. And you knew the how it when it turned out good and turned out bad. So you were learning along with his. I stuck close to my father and I, yeah. you know, I, I like to think I was a good son. I, I listened to him, you know, and I watched the way he operated and I've, you know, kind of modeled myself on him. And so, for example, I would describe myself as uh, whether it's an old style businessman, but certainly an old style art dealer or an antique dealer, all the same thing. And I'm sure that also happened in, say, the diamond business or whatever. It's uh -huh. your word is your bonds and a handshake is a deal. And yeah. you know, if, if you shook on something or agreed on something, whether you decided you'd made a bad deal or not, you you stuck by it. Yeah. And I still believe in that today. So it's a complete anatomy, all these contracts and legal documents and everything. Yeah. Hey, for goodness sake, do we really need all of this? Well, again, you go back to the... Uh attention deficit thing who wants to you know that's why you have attorneys and uh you know they can read them for you so you now, after all of these years one one thing about growing a business is it you have to give it time to mature and grow if you were up if you had put in those years up to 84 and had that reputation, had the contacts and everything, there's no way you would have been prepared to even consider moving from outside of London uh, and to where you're going right into the downtown of And you wouldn't know what you had to have to make that work. I mean, you... you, in you truth, in yeah. truth, I had no idea. Did you? It yeah. was. It really was Dick Whittington. I thought the streets were going to be paved with gold, I thought as soon as I you just get to London, you know, it's, it's going to be so easy. We're going to sell pictures like hotcakes. Boy, was I wrong. Yeah. It sounds like uh, I, I was watching a Sylvester Stallone uh, uh, documentary on uh, Netflix last night. And he said when he had the big hit with Rocky, of course, everybody said, he, you know, they all turned it down. And, you know, he had to write it himself. He had to direct it. He had to do the whole thing himself. And then. Uh, when they screened it, half of the people, they screened it uh, before the opening and two thirds of the uh, three quarters of the audience walked out and during the screening. And but then uh, somehow, miraculously, four hours later, they had uh, the real crowd came in and the paying crowd. But he said uh, by the time they got to the knockout punch at the end of the movie, the crowd was on their feet screaming and everything. And his, he said, right, he said at that moment he knew his life had changed. But he thought, like you said, the streets are going to be paved with gold. I'll never have a problem again. And he said, boy, was I wrong. <laughs> you know, they expect every, everything you do after that to be a uh, monster hit. And, of course, uh, that doesn't uh, uh, happen. Thanks for listening to the Million Dollar Mastermind. If you felt there were any valuable takeaways from this episode, please take a minute and leave us a five-star review. Your feedback is important and really helps us get the word out to a wider audience. Remember, we have a valuable webinar that is absolutely free. Register for it right now at whitealamwinning.com. Thanks for listening.